This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Thanks for joining me on this special business-focused episode of the podcast brought to you interruption-free by the transformational beverage industry technologists at Encompass. Their digital platform is designed to connect everyone across the supply chain from producers to distributors and retailers so that you have clear, real-time visibility into your brewing business with powerful analytics to support your decision-making. Collaborate to maximize sales, minimize empty shelves, and eliminate product waste. Visit EncompassTech.com to learn more about how they can help future-proof your business with modern technology. And speaking of future-proofing, that is the theme of this episode. Um, that is what we are going to talk about for the next hour. Joining me for this conversation, uh, first up is Patrick Tickle, CEO of Encompass, a beer nerd with a 25-plus year career in software and hardware technology. He's done everything from hunt down fresh heady topper on a delivery day to lead product for tech companies that range from chip and computer hardware manufacturers to cloud-based SaaS business services. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. You're joining us from Austin, Texas. Uh, great weather down there. It's a little little colder up where we are in Colorado, where I am in Colorado. Um, but I'm a little bit little bit jealous. Not I can't lie. Well, I- as we were joking earlier, it's brisk and awesome today, and everybody's wearing stocky caps at 60 degrees. So, you know, that's the way it is here. Well, you have to have something to signify this season. Sure, sure. Also joining me is Cole Hackbarth, VP of Brewing Operations for Rheingeist Brewery in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cole has been with Rheingeist for nine years, and over that time has overseen one of the most impressive growth trajectories in modern craft beer. As Rheingeist produced over 110,000 barrels of beer last year, um, just an incredible story out uh, of Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Cole. Thanks for having me. It's crazy we haven't had Rheingeist on the podcast yet up to this date. So I'm, I'm but I'm super, super excited to talk about this. Um, and rounding out the panel is my friend Dave Thibodeau, president and co-founder of Scott Brewing, co-founder of Peach Street Distillers, who's coming up on 29 years at the helm of the uh, Durango. Colorado Craft Brewery. Of course, over 29 years, Dave's watched lots of expansion and contraction cycles happen in craft beer, and I can't wait to uh, uh, you know dive into some of Dave's experience and how to manage those. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Jamie. Good to be here. And that's another one I can't believe I haven't done a Scott podcast, a Scott Brewing podcast yet, because I, Dave, I've Dave and I have known each other since 1996. Um, back in the 1995, I launched a ska magazine, ska zine called Scottastrophe. And then this little brewery that was getting started out of Durango, Colorado, uh, called ska brewing was like, how do we send you some beer to review in your ska zine? Um, and, uh, you know, what a weird, funny story when we were launching this, uh, launching craft beer and brewing in the late 2013, I went and saw the toasters play here in Fort Collins and was talking to Rob Hingley, the lead singer, founder of the toasters and uh, mentioned that we were doing this. It's like, well, you guys, you know, the guys from skies like, well, I talked to him way back in the days. Like, well, let me put you in touch. And, uh, he connected us and, uh, that's the reason there is a ska brewing modus operandi recipe in issue number one of craft beer and brewing magazine. And so, uh, so it's great to see you. It's great to have you a part of this conversation, Dave. Fantastic. Like we said at the top, the, the focus of this, this conversation is on future proof, uh, future proofing your brewing business. 
I think as everyone has seen right now in this current, this month uh, or the last few months of, of craft beer, there's a lot of, there are a lot of questions hanging out there. There's a lot of breweries. It seems like breweries deciding to put them, go out of business as uh, that rate has increased. When I was up in Fobab earlier this month, uh, you know, the word, word was that uh, something like about 10% of Illinois breweries this year will have closed by the end of the year. That does seem like an acceleration from a normal rate of uh, maybe two and a half to three percent per year, which is what we've seen historically over the number of years. Um, this is—I don't know if this is—I don't think this is just endemic to craft beer. I think this is endemic to not just the the entire hospitality industry. We are seeing it hospitality industry wide. Uh, we're probably ultimately seeing it economy wide, and I think that there's some broader effect that we're seeing now that's a result of larger scale, you know, Fed monetary policy, uh, uh, interest rate hikes, and a broader overall approach to cool down the economy, which seems good to control prices, but at the same time has some serious and uh, incredibly negatively impactful, uh, uh, or sorry, incredible negative impacts on the way that some businesses, uh, you know, can operate in the world. Um, it's a challenging time for craft brewing businesses. And so maybe we start off with a, you know, a first, you know, big and broad kind of question, um, you know, from your standpoint and, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll start with you, Dave, uh, from your standpoint, um, what are some of the, you know, the major challenges that you see right now that you're feeling within the business? Um, you know, and, uh, you know, if we're thinking about, in this broader context of future proofing, what are what are some of those items that you are really focused on um, in terms of the kinds of challenges and and uh, you know threats to the business right now? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and obviously the question we all wish we had the answer to. Um, but that that I think the threats, a couple of the big ones that we're really kind of struggling with and trying to figure out how to face moving forward are. Um, I guess pricing and margins, looking at raw materials and uh, the cost of goods going up, you know, coupled with inflation, I guess it's all hand in hand. But but at the same time, we've kind of come up against that consumer threshold on what they're willing to bear as far as uh, as pricing goes. So we're kind of at that point where our raw materials are continuing to rise, but the consumer is no longer willing to pay more for their beer, at least the type of beer that, you know, that we that we come out with. Um, that's a big one, I think, um, but probably our biggest because it, in the past we used to be able to, you know, just adjust pricing accordingly. And now that the trajectory of raw materials costs and consumer threshold, it's, they don't, they're pairing away from each other now. And so that's, that's a difficult one too. And then I think the other obvious one is, um, is what new products you're coming out with moving forward and what innovation might mean. And, uh, you know, it used to be, if you just came out with a new beer, you could expect a bump in sales, um, almost regardless of what happens to your, to your other, your other beers. And now it's, you know, are you coming out with an RTD or are you coming out with some other beyond beer or are you coming out with a, a new beer that's innovative? And I think, I think ever since COVID there's, there's a lot of uh, innovation isn't doesn't mean the same thing that it used to mean. You need to find another way to stand out. I think you can't have those same expectations with a new 
with a new product. And and for us, it's it's particularly beer. I mean, we do have the distillery, as you mentioned, but but here at Ska, we're we're pretty focused on beer. It's what we're into. Um, most of the other beyond beer categories are they're just you and I touched on it before the show. It's not in our soul. We probably aren't going to go there. So how do you how do you innovate moving forward in a way that retailers or customers are going to grab grab a hold of it and, and run with it? Um, which is I'm really excited to hear what Cole has to say because these guys seem to have figured something out that I can't figure out. So I uh, it's great to have you know Ryan guys on on the, on the program. So I'm kind of excited for this conversation. Sure, sure. No, there's a big, there's a cost to R&D. There's a cost to launching new products at scale. And, uh, you know, as we're now seeing, you know, what you know, if you don't have enough years to recoup on that kind of investment, then uh, you can actually put yourself in a tough position uh, by doing some of this. And so being able to evaluate what those opportunities are uh, in this day and age, in this current beer market is incredibly tight. And I can't wait to dive into some of the ways that you look at that. Cole, you know, from your perspective uh, at Rheingeist, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that, uh, you know, that as you all have identified them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a lot of the same. It's cost of goods, um, rising prices everywhere, smaller margins, um, and just trying to stay competitive. Obviously as a regional brewer, the further away from home we get, the more competitive it gets. Um, every city, every state has a local regional powerhouse now. Um, so you can no longer just get growth and volume by expanding your footprint. Uh, those gains are getting smaller and smaller uh, as the years go on. So now you've got to focus at home and kind of penetrate deeper where you're already at. Um, and that's where we found a lot of success. Um, and that's always been one of our, our strong suits is, is being so deep in Ohio and kind of the tri-state area. Um, and then, yeah, I think overall just the generational shift in drinking that's going on right now. You know, everybody talks about millennials kind of aging out and drinking less because they're getting older, starting families, all that stuff. And then turning to Gen Z, what does Gen Z want to drink? Half of them aren't even legal to drink yet, and the other half are young enough that they don't care, right? When I was in my early 20s, I drank whatever was cheap. Um, and I didn't I didn't settle into craft beer until I was a little bit older. So I think there's just going to be some time between that generational shift until everybody kind of figures out what they want to drink and where craft beverage is going. And, and every successful brewery is just going to be kind of primed to to jump on whatever emerges and that's kind of the what's driven our success is being open to things and kind of always experimenting and playing around with stuff um and and just being ready for whatever comes next kind of adaptability has been our theme um but you know obviously a part of our dna having grown as fast as we did was just always changing always under pressure um and so now that the pressure is different in that we're not growing the way we were, um, you know, the team is still ready for it and, and we're just kind of reused to it. So sure, we'll see where it goes. I'm facing this generational thing myself. My, my oldest son is 18 and we were just over in, in England and uh, France where he is of legal drinking age and is, was still not interested <laughs> in consuming any beer. Um, you know, that's just not, he's just not into it. So it'll be interesting to see how that piece 
uh, works its way out and uh, whether that does change over time. Patrick, from your perspective as a, as a you know, leading a business that helps brewers uh, gain insight into you know, these processes, what are you hearing from your brewing industry clients in terms of some of the the you know the pieces that they are most concerned about, and how you know, and then how are you thinking about um, tailoring the uh, you know the the systems that you all build to help them answer some of these questions that are top of their minds? Yeah, well, you know, I think Dave, and you know, it's a perfect. Uh, I can see why you know we have a great kind of cross section of the market right here, right? I mean, because I think Dave and uh, Cole represent you know what we hear from. All of our customers, right? You have, I appreciate uh, Dave's words about the soul of what SCA does, right? There's a lot, there are a lot of people in this, in this, uh, in the brewing space that, you know, have a very, um, you know, deep connection to the soul of what they do, right? Um, and that, uh, and, and that, you know, that's creates some challenges, right? Um, and, you know, kind of reshaping that soul. And then there's, and then there's absolutely people like uh, Cole and Reingeist that, right, you know, that, again, they haven't lost the, I, they haven't lost the soul of what they do, but they've, you know, they've, uh, they've kind of evolved to what they do. Right. And, and again, back to, uh, you know, back to Dave's, uh, Dave's point, he's interested in hearing more about how Cole's kind of built what they've built there. Right. But I think, you know, and there's a lot of things, you know, there's a, I, I there's a lot of things that, are you know, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of software analogies to like what's happening, I think in brewing. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm historically a long time technology person. I'm a Silicon Valley person, you know, um, that has spent most almost my entire career in technology. Uh, you know, good news is I am a I I, I definitely consider consider myself an informed consumer of craft beer. Uh, but uh, you know, but you know, there's you know terms like agility, right, and pivoting, and you know, product market fit, and supply chains, like those kinds of words <laughs> that are things that we live that we live in in software and in technology. Also, they're terms that kind of apply to like you know. Uh, every brewer, right? And uh, oh, by the way, every winemaker uh, and every distributor, right? Uh, in the in the market we're in right now, so it's a it is like you said, it's a very interesting time, but uh, it's shaking the it's shaking the trees, right? In a lot of ways, uh, for, for what people certainly what we've all been used to uh, for the last you know decade or so, right? Sure, sure. Well, let's start t- by talking about product, and I think uh, you know this subject of innovation is is one that uh, um, you all brought up. That uh, this, if you look at the history of craft beer, craft beer, um, if you, that psychograph of uh, you know craft beer consumer has almost always been aligned with exploration. That you find that customer that wants to try new things. I mean, that's why they might even be drawn to the entire category, right? They want to try new things. They are there for some of that exploration. Otherwise, they could just drink the cheap, accessible stuff that's always there for them. If they weren't aligned towards wanting to try new things, then they may not be uh, attracted to the category at all. Um, this is a blessing and a curse, right? You know, um, the cost of innovation is high. The cost of rolling out, uh, of doing the R&D in terms of not only creating the new products, but also thinking about where people are going to be by the time that you can actually bring this product to market. Those become interesting challenges. Um, as you all think about innovation now, um, you know, what does it look like, you know, in that brewing space? You know, how, what are... Yeah, there is 
these, there are these broad industry trends where, oh, someone else is making something, so I have to make something like that. Um, but then there were also, as you speak to it, Dave, like those soul ideas of how could we respond to where these trends are moving, but do it in a way that speaks to our, our own values and our own kind of approach. Um, you know, so for Scott and for Rheingeist, how do you, how do each of you think about innovation and put a framework around it um, that both manages it in a way that it makes sense um, that you can evaluate it looking forward but then build it so uh, build innovation so that these new products that come from it uh, actually speak back to, to the the brands that you've built it's interesting for us because as you mentioned um you know we started our, our distillery peach street years ago and so early on and we were also an early canning craft brewery um so i think when you look at innovation in terms of the beyond beer category. So whether you're talking about seltzers or say RTDs, um, you know, we had the opportunity to be canning RTDs the very, very early stages of that. But once again, it was, we were, we're kind of purists on the distillery side and we're sort of on the brewery side, which is where I function day to day. I really, uh, the, the two, I should say the two are, are, are actually separate businesses located in different parts of the state. So, not under one roof or anything but but we had the ability you know we had the technology and we had the we had the product um but just canning a mixed drink or something along those lines just kind of wasn't in our dna we talked about it early wasn't interesting to us here at the brewery i still have this i just keep coming back to beer and like you mentioned i've seen it it, it is cyclical you see beer go through some phases and you also see things like whether it's wine coolers or the Zima products or whatever it might be, you know, they come and go. And I really believe that they are going to continue to come and go. We're going to keep seeing crazy things pop up and go away and pop up and go away. But there is one constant and that's beer and it has been for thousands of years, as you know. And so really that's, we lean heavily into it. So the question really becomes, how do we innovate within the category of craft beer um, for us? We don't need to look outside of that because it's it's just it's not in our wheelhouse and it doesn't feel good. Um, and maybe that could be to our detriment at some point, I guess. But so be it. Um, I'd rather it be that way than than do something that I don't enjoy or believe in. So I think um, it's interesting now. You know, focusing in Colorado, Cole was talking about how. You know, go. You got to go deeper where you already are now. And in Colorado, that's where ninety percent of our beer is sold. You know, we're recent. The grocery stores and the chains didn't start taking full strength beer in two thousand nineteen, and now they have wine in the stores as of this year. And so, it's really interesting when you start thinking of what does innovation mean outside of our own tap room. Um, I think some of the grocery stores now that they've had a couple years are pulling back and they want tried and true. Um, whereas we did have a couple years of new beers, got good new placements. So it's tough, at least in Colorado, it's, tr it's tough to navigate. The bonus is our tap room. You know, we have a pilot system and we come out with at least a beer a week. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. And we use, um, we use a lot of input from our on-premise consumers that, and our customers that like to come here and drink, and then our our brewers and our younger brewers that really want to innovate beyond what we've classically done, 
we mess around with that a lot. And then if something seems to have legs in the tasting room, we might start to run with it at that point. And then it, then it's a new game. You know, how do you get it into the chains and do the independent stores still want it now that they're facing these challenges? Um, because you can buy beer and wine in grocery stores. So everyone's got a different thought process out in the buying world now. And, uh, just that's all before you ever even get to the consumer. So that, and that's really where it counts is how do you pull through at the consumer level, which is really difficult to, to gauge nowadays. Um, it's all over the place. And, uh, so I, I don't know. It's a, it is a great question. We're fairly steady right now. As far as sales, we do come out with new canned beers fairly regularly, um, that we get out market wide and, uh, and they do okay, you know, but I don't think, I think the days of flagships are gone. So that's probably, nothing's going to become a new flagship for a beer, a brewery like us anymore. So do you approach it from a standpoint of, well, we're going to need to have a new product every quarter, yeah, that we can then bring out and uh, how are we going to feed an R&D program that can, um, you know, match this that we know that we need to bring out to the market or um, is it a more organic approach? Like you talk about where when we have an idea that gets legs and that uh, starts building steam with our own product testing within our tap room that we then lead out into, you know, take it to the market or is it some blend of both? It's kind of a blend of both. You know, when you're, when you're talking about like the, the chain stores, for example, they're looking further and further out. You know, if you're talking about a new product in a chain store, there's only, you only have a couple opportunities a year to get put into a grocery store and you have to, you have to be pretty prepared to present six, eight months before that's going to happen. So you do have to have some planning there. Um, but we still have the bulk of our sales in the, in, in the independent stores, Colorado liquor, I guess is what the categories is called, but that enables us to, we're fair, we're fairly nimble because we're still relatively small, I guess. And it's, so we can do, if something hits and we do kind of, we don't want to miss a window of opportunity because consumer taste can change so quickly. Um, we can release that and get it out in our independent stores as quickly as possible and then make it a mainstay in our, in our tasting room. So we do a lot of planning throughout the year, but we also fly by the seat of our pants and the, and the, and what, whatever the consumer might want or if something hits, we'll run with it in a hurry. Sure. Cole, what, uh, for Rheingeist, what is, what is your innovation program look like? You know, um, do you again have, have set goals, uh, or do you approach it more organically? Um, you know, how do you all build a framework around that and how do you then start to evaluate what the opportunities might be for some of these things in the innovation space? So the last like four or five years definitely have been challenging. You know, we as a company saw the rise of seltzer and let it pass by. But then as the pressure for all of this non-beer stuff and people talking about craft kind of plateauing came about, we're like, all right, we'll jump in with FMB. We'll do some hard tea. So we've been playing around in that space. But what we've really learned is those FMB consumers are a completely different consumer. Craft beer consumers are very promiscuous. They'll bounce around to the other categories those other consumers that live outside of craft do not do the same. Um, so when it comes to gaining share, customer acquisition, and trying to build a new brand in a completely new segment of the cooler, it's very difficult and very expensive. You need to advertise heavily. You need to be getting in front of those people. And it, particularly in the last few years, 
all of beverage has seen pretty wild growth as far as just new companies getting into the game and new brands being launched. Um, there's not even just an alcohol, you know, look at energy drinks and juice and water and all of these other things. You know, every celebrity's got, you know, three or four versions of each, you know, it's kind of the new thing. So what we've kind of realized over the last couple of years, you know, uh, similar to what, what Scott's doing is kind of looking back in at craft beer and saying, this is what we do really well, rather than divide our focus and kind of try to do all the things, let's just focus on on what we're doing and what we're good at, and that's craft beer. So we're kind of transitioning all of our uh, innovation back inward, um, and it seems to be working for us. Truth, uh, by far our flagship IPA, um, is still growing. We just launched this year its first line extension with Juicy Truth. So you could argue probably way behind the trend when everybody else was launching their their hazy IPAs, you know, and their and their line extensions, you know, uh, pre-COVID. But it's working great for us, um, and I think part of our success might actually be that we dragged our feet a little bit and didn't do it until we really felt we needed to, and it was time. So I think a, a big part of meaningful innovation is directing your focus to things that are going to be impactful and not just trying to jump on every trend and do everything just because everybody else is doing it. There's something to the old Apple analogy, isn't there there, Patrick, that idea that you don't need to be the first to market with a, with a product, yeah, yeah. but you need to be the best. Yeah. I mean, look, in software, we have the same exact thing, right? You know, it's, it's a different version of product. You know, it was one of the things I was thinking about as prepping for this, trying to, you know, draw analogies from my from my background to, uh, you know, what you guys are, or the businesses you guys run. But I mean, you know, on a relative basis, it's easy to, uh, you know, it's easy to take a, take 10 to 20 developers and say, hey, let's go build a product, right? Like, you know, and uh, it may not be, again, it might be an extension, you know, uh, to what we do today and adjacency to what we do today, just like a seltzer or just like a cider would be. Um, but exactly to Cole's, uh, Cole's point, like the product is actually like building the product is the easy part. <laughs> It's the, the go to market is the hard part, right? Like, you know, and what your brand stands for, you know, what your sales organization is comfortable selling, your entire go to market motion. That's the hard part that, you know, uh, new competitors, because yeah, at the end of the day, like when you, uh, probably when you build a new product, that's the whole product market fit thing, right? You've probably, have, you're probably actually, uh, targeting a new, cons- a new customer, you know, and a new persona. And, and that just doesn't happen. You know, that doesn't happen just because you're on the shelf. It doesn't just happen because, uh, we give a product to our uh, our salespeople and say, "Go sell it." It's he- it's uh, it's heavy lifting, you know. Um, I've noticed it as a like I said, as an informed consumer, I've noticed it in my own uh, in my own refrigerator, right? My my refrigerator was uh, the the garage refrigerator was my has always been my craft beer refrigerator. That's everything. It was pretty much I don't know. It was like craft beer and then holiday uh, leftovers, you know. And that was like that's what that fridge did, right? And now I have. You have two daughters that are in college, and uh, you know that fridge is now—it's a craft beer fridge. But there's FMBs and and RTDs and Rattlers. There's all kinds of shit in there. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, look, I I in, I will you say, clean maybe, it out. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Oh, it, it yeah, because guess what? They don't all those other ones. Yeah, they don't move as fast as the craft beer does. The craft beer still like seems to like turn over, right? But uh, but the other ones seem to fester in there sometimes. But but uh, 
But you know, I think they've it's got a long a shelf bit, life. Though. It'll be okay. They have a, the good news is they have a long shelf life, right? But uh, I think, but I think a little bit to uh, to Cole's point, right? I don't think uh, again, just using myself as a proxy. I mean, I think though, you know, that has been growth in share of wallet, not not dollars taken away from you know from my corner of the fridge, right? Like my craft beer is still there. It's just now there's another shelf full of other things. Uh, that are, you know, for, but again, yeah, my daughters, like, yeah, they move like the wind, man. Like, you know, and, on, uh, and they exhibit a whole different kind of, just like your son, right. They exhibit a whole different brand preference model, you know, uh, than, uh, than what, yeah, certainly than what my, me and my buddies are all used to. Right. We could talk about influencer marketing, uh, later on and, uh, see how much you all are spending on that. <laughs> but no, I, I think it actually would be good to, to come back and talk about the cost of launching a new brand. Cause it's something I've heard. I mean, it was even within the beer space, not even the beyond beer space. Uh, you know, I was talking to Doug uh, Velicki of, of revolution back at Fobab and, you know, he was mentioning like the cost of launching a premium lager brand for them. It feels like, oh, we'll just launch a new beer. Well, you know, the it's it's a multi-year process involving millions and millions of dollars and an extreme spend in order to be able to make that brand relevant in a market that's already that has that's already very crowded. And so, you know, rather than just launching a product and letting it die you know, if you want to give it a chance to live, like what you have to invest in it is actually much more significant than what people think about. Um, so let, I. I want to come back to that, but before we do, you know, uh, for Rheingeist and for Ska Brewing, how material are these uh, beyond beer categories? Um, just just how valuable are they to your businesses? And, you know, how do you make or have you then you know, retrenched and pulled back from them because what you were making from these were, was not uh, delivering on the cost of putting them out there? into a market how do have you evaluated the success of these or then and you know in that kind of context how long of a leash would you give some of these products how long of how much investment how much risk are you willing to take in some of these categories before you say hey this isn't working or either we need to spend more if we're going to even make this relevant or is that worth spending that much more and will we get our you know our investment out of it how do you make some of those kind of go no go decisions but then also evaluate how a product is doing in the market and kind of course correct you know through the marketing and the go-to-market process around those. Cole, you got to start this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, these days, that's less and less of an internal conversation. Um, obviously, Kroger is in our backyard here in Cincinnati. If you're not performing on a shelf, your retail partners will let you know. Um, and they have less and less patience for failing products every year just because there's so many new brands and categories are shifting pretty dramatically every year. Um, so the same amount of, of shelf space is, is getting shared around between different beverage types. Um, so resets get crazier every year. You know, whereas you used to have kind of two opportunities to reset in the year, now there's really just the spring reset and you get in what you get in and, you know, maybe a fall tweak if you're lucky, but unlikely for most people. So it's if if you're not showing performance in a year, you're gonna have some pretty dramatic impacts to your points of distribution um, and the number of, of retail spots you hold. Uh, so that's really gonna drive 
kind of the success of your innovation. So if it's not successful quickly, you're you're going to need to be ready to pivot. Um, and if your year-over-year comps are not favorable, you need to pivot dramatically because that you will not survive a, a third year. So again, it's it's you got to be adaptable. You've got to be got to be ready to come armed with good data to tell why your your sales strategy is working, or if it's not working, what are you going to do specifically to course correct um, and to help your retailer be successful with your product? And if you just come and be like, well, we hope it trends turn around, and you know, we we really feel good about the spring, they're not going to buy it, and and they're going to ditch you. Are there some arguments and some plans that resonate with retailers in that sense? Like, what are they looking for? What is a what's a plan that would make sense? Um, so they're looking for you to capitalize on where you're strong, right? So in Rheingeist in Ohio, Truth is huge. We're really strong in beer. So if we come with new beer innovation, um, they're usually pretty accepting, and they be like, "Yep, your beer portfolio is is stellar." happy to see you playing around in that space, you know, whereas obviously in our, our non-beer space, we're struggling a little bit. Um, and so that's, that's part of what's driving us to, to kind of pivot back into beer is we, we know we're not going to win as many shelf placements, um, in, in FMB, uh, that we would have four years ago. So, you know, that's, that's the conversation we're having. And, it, and it's, it's a nice open conversation that, that we get to have, I think, um, not all breweries probably get to be as open with with their big retail partners, um, but it's it's something we're we're in a fortunate situation to be in. From those retail partners, how much is uh, price sensitivity from the consumer side weigh into their product decisions around some of these uh, beyond beer products that they'll consider from you all? Um, a lot. The you've got to come with some serious marketing dollars to say this is premium and you should charge a premium price. Um, if you just come in and say it's crafty and as such that means it's premium, that doesn't resonate as much anymore. You know, if you say, hey, this is an expensive product, you've got to back it up um, with more than just saying the liquid tastes good. You know, and that's that's kind of how craft beer has been too, right? Like most expensive craft beers are the ones that everybody thinks are the best tasting and the, you know, fullest flavor. Um, I'm sure we all have comments on on the validity of that across the board, but you know, generally that's that's how it works, um, and that's particularly right now everybody's hyper focused on on kind of being line priced with the rest of the industry. Obviously, with everybody taking price um, and that going up, you know, to what we were talking about earlier, the customer is very price sensitive right now. Um, so it's a a pretty big ask to come in with a product that you say is premium uh, and ask a, a retailer and a consumer to pay that when they're already paying a premium for what they've been drinking the whole time. Sure, Dave. You all have, have done fermented hard seltzers and hop water um, and, you know, and definitely played around in this uh, you know, beyond space. Um, you know, how, how has that kind of evaluation process worked for you? And what have you found, uh, you know, in, in terms of how to both connect those to consumers and connect those to, to retailers um, and make them stand out within a, a, a very crowded marketplace? I, I like the question right now because it's something that we're, we're dealing with at the moment. Um, it's really only our, 
our hard seltzers that we are kind of struggling with. That's our only other at the moment, our only other non-beer product from Scott. And uh, we came out with um, swinging pretty early in the seltzer game. And we had our first variety pack out there. It took off, you know, that had a year of, of great growth, like anybody that jumped in at that time. Um, and then we, we followed up with a, another variety pack and then three other flavors. And that didn't do as well. And that, that was kind of at the end of that first year. And then it, it, it started dropping off. What's been really interesting for us is that original assorted mixed pack um, is pretty steady. And once once we peaked and we hit a decline, we thought that was just the end of the discussion and uh, let's run through some inventory and and move on. And then it plateaued, which kind of caught us all off guard. Um, and so we still have you know that same assorted 12 pack of seltzer out in the market in Colorado. It's only in Colorado, um, at the moment. And now we're at the point like, gosh, maybe we should do something about it or, or try to work on it because it's been kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, an afterthought, we didn't expect it to hang in there and it is. And now it's, should we build off of that or should we just try and maintain it? Or should we forget about it entirely, actually, and just focus on beer, like kind of like we've been talking about? So it's a good question. It's one we're asking ourselves right now, and um, I don't really know what the answer is or how to move forward on it. I kind of it, it it's been I'm like I said, I'm always it's just me, particularly. Fortunately, there's people on our team that think differently than myself, but I'm always just thinking about beer, and uh, so it's kind of a for me, it's not what I'm drinking. Um, we put a lot of work into it, but now it's a question like, gosh, is there some potential and opportunity there that maybe we're missing out on that, you know, I shouldn't, I should just get over it and move and move forward. Um, but it's, once again, it's a great question right now and we're trying to answer it. And, uh, and I don't really know what the future holds as far as our, as our, I think as far as non-beer goes, the seltzers about it. I don't know. Every time we really have a serious discussion we kind of just come back to beer. But we're at that point right now where I think we're on that line that you're talking about. Like, what is your metric? And how do you decide what kind of effort and, and, and dollars um, do you want to put into something? And, what and, you know, is the return there? And what is that? And we're right there trying to figure it out or walking that line right now with our seltzers. But they have a solid, I think they have a solid foundation. You know, I think, we would disappoint some folks if we if we let it go. You know, I think again, I think one of the evolutions, and I'm I'm sure, like you said, you know, Dave, you guys, and Cole, you guys are doing this right. But I I think a lot of this, it, there's another analogy, right, to uh, the software business, right? Like it's that evolution from a lot of companies go through this. Uh, Encompass has gone through this, right? For for 17 years, we were a one product company, right? We like built distribution software. That's like what we did. You know, then we came together with orchestra uh, into uh, in the brewing, you know, brewing production space. We came together. Most people, a lot of people, don't realize we came together with a company called Vintrace uh, just over a year and a half ago. That's kind of the analog in wine and uh, in wine production. And when you you start operating that way, all of a sudden you have to operate. You know, you're operating a, a you know either it's a brand portfolio or a product portfolio, and 
and the metrics aren't the same, right? Like certain products. And so, you know, there's that classic uh, Boston consulting group stuff that we sit around and do all the time, right? We have cash, you know, there's cash cows, there's dogs, there's stars, there's question marks. Yeah. And you set different metrics and objectives uh, for every one of those different parts of your portfolio, right? So like, again, to your point, uh, Dave, like that 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 uh, variety pack might be a nice little product. It, it may not justify like a bigger investment profile. It just is what it is. It fits your portfolio, you know, and fills a fills a spot. The key thing I would say probably, and I know you know, uh, you know, is you know, getting to the place where you have the data to understand the you know the profitability of those products, right? You know, because that's obviously a super important. You know, you can run a brand portfolio, and you don't have to have every product be this uh, equal profit. Doesn't have to have the equal growth. But you do need to understand the return that each one of those products brings back to you. Otherwise, you just fall into the trap of like, well, we got to figure out how to make it become a star and become a high growth product or it's not worth keeping, right? And if you don't have the data underneath, like to kind of support, you know, portfolio decisions, um, you know, then you're kind of, you're a little bit flying blind on what you should do with different aspects of your portfolio. It, it, it's fine to have low growth products that are highly profitable, just like it's it's fine to have really high growth products that are less profitable, right? Yeah, you know, but... Um, but you got to understand that, and I think at the end of the day, at Encompass, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're trying to do is at least give people like uh, Dave and Cole like the the data to make those decisions, right? We're you know we're not going to tell you what your strategy is, right? But hopefully we can help uh, in you know give you the in, give you the data, arm you with the data, like Dave's uh, like uh, Cole said a little while ago, to uh, you know think about how to make those decisions. No, that's a that's a good point. That brings us to an, you know another big question I had for you all is. What are some of those key data points, you know, that help define some of these go, no to go decisions? You know, it whenever you're going to launch a new product or even when you're thinking about, you know, how to support existing products, um, you know, you want, we're all willing to invest to help grow products. Again, uh, as Patrick said, you know, you understand what the opportunities are probably going to be for these, but how you determine what those opportunities are really depends on uh, how you look at that data. Uh, most of the data that we have is is obviously trailing. We can see how a product did and then those channels that how it did in some of those channels um, that does not necessarily predict future performance. It simply shows us what it did in the past. Um, but how, you know, what are some of those key, you know, data points that you look at in evaluating the the um, past or current success of some of your products, or even identify those things that if you put a little bit of more oomph behind, that you might be able to to see some outsized return from. Are there some key metrics that you guys rely on um, in some of that decision making? Yeah, I mean, obviously, from a business perspective, gross margin um, is always kind of top of mind. And, you know, it's it's across the whole portfolio. You know, we kind of have targets that blended, you know, we want to hit, um, allowing certain new innovation to, foot, you know, fall below. And as it grows, hopefully it comes in line and, you know, things like 19.2 ounce cans um, and how those roll in with a blended margin with, you know, their six pack or 12 pack uh, family. You know, that's that's definitely something we, we keep an eye on. Because um, the last thing you want to do is have a bunch of really high-end, low-margin products driving all of your growth, and then suddenly your profitability uh, isn't what it once was. Um, even though your volume growth is great, all, and all the of revenue those triple is great, dry hopped. 
triple dry hopped IPAs, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and we saw a little bit of that, you know, as we got out of beer into the FMB space. It was, you know, post-COVID, right as sugar prices were skyrocketing and supply chains were blowing up. And so, you know, what, you know, 10 years ago, sugar bev was pretty cost effective and, you know, cheap to make suddenly became a very expensive product. Um, you know, so that was that was a reckoning we had to have with with sugar based uh, beverages of kind of it's it from a cost of goods standpoint, it wasn't as favorable as it used to be. So, you know, that that's a big one for us. And then on the sales side, uh, uh, share, just kind of market share is a big one for us. And that's kind of how we've been measuring success as our growth has started to slow down and, and plateau a little bit, you know, especially in 2020 when, you know, on-premise was shutting down and it was all, it was all retail because we're so heavily self-distributed, we were able to gain a lot of share in that time when other breweries were waiting for their wholesalers who'd streamlined their portfolios, you know, because of staffing issues and, and all of that. They couldn't get their innovation out. You know, they were having a hard time keeping shelves stocked. And we were able, because of our our internal team, to kind of do all of that for ourselves. And we saw some really nice share gains during that time that have that have continued. Um, I think that's what's helped us get to where we are now, where we continue to grow, um, even our flagship, where a lot of other people are are kind of stagnating is is we gained a lot of share of mind and we kind of moved ourselves into being, you know, the uh, IPA for Ohio. Sure. So there's some context to your decision, you know, your decision making where it's not just in terms of pure dollar amounts, but also, mm-hmm. hey, you know, let's look at us relative to the overall market. Um, you know, yep. does that suggest that you all are fairly comfortable with the market itself remaining somewhat static and not necessarily itself growing? I mean, um you know, or that uh, that you have settled into kind of a you know strategizing with craft at its current uh, you know dollar and volume you know, kind of uh, place in the market. Yeah, no, we've we've done a lot of work internally um, to drive down cost of goods, so we're we're in a comfortable place uh, profit wise. If the market stays where it is, prices stay where they're at, we're okay. There's a lot of competition in craft, but what we've kind of decided and, and figured out is craft beer is not going anywhere. Um, there may be fewer drinkers, which means there needs to be fewer breweries, which we're kind of seeing, right? But we're confident by focusing on quality and keeping meaningful innovation uh, coming out, we'll, we'll rise to the top. Dave, how do you guys, uh, you know, what are some of the metrics that you guys look at and in, uh, in evaluating opportunities or, you know, making go, no-go decisions, you know, thinking about where to, to put energy and investment, uh, you know, and uh, or also thinking about how to, uh, you know, where you can find more efficiencies within that kind of business? I think, uh, um, well, when, when Patrick was talking earlier, he's kind of talking about you know, your, your higher volume, lower margin products and your, your higher margin, lower volume products and whatever your, the mix within your portfolio looks like, um, that blended margin, every business knows what that blended margin is that they, that they need to operate sustainably at. And, uh, 
and that can change. I, the one thing I would add there is that, that for us, you know, at, after a tight year like 2023 has been, um, cash flow becomes more of a decision maker for us than than profitability. Um, and it, unfortunately, it comes at the expense of profitability, making cash flow decisions. So, and what I mean by that is paying more for lower amounts of inventory for raw materials or, or even on the production side, it could be when you're talking about innovation, you know, do you, do you come out with something that's quicker to make even a, an ale versus a lager? Certainly not. Probably when you're, when you're cash poor or you're having a tight cash flow situation, we're not barrel aging a lot of stuff for two years or a year. Um, and so some of those decisions come in and then how quickly you can actually take it to market and, uh, and, and, and actually create cash flow. This is really the first year that we've really kind of had to focus on that. You know, we're very seasonal brewery. So we have shoulder seasons, October, November, and then March, April. And uh, where things slow down and we usually, you know, we build up our coffers in the busy seasons and then we ride through the, the slower seasons. And this, like this fall has been particularly tough. So a lot of those decisions we're making, you know, they're going to, they're going to come at the expense of the bottom line, but they're going to bridge the gap until the spring or the summer. So those those metrics that help us really kind of understand day to day, as opposed to looking at our balance sheet at the end of the year or PNL, um, it's kind of uh, those are metrics we're really paying close attention to. And really, for me, it's the most attention I've ever paid to that. It's we've always been pretty fortunate and been able to scoot through some of those shoulder seasons. But now it's a it's something very real. And, you know, I know down the line we're going to be like, oh, gosh, but, you know, that all came at the expense of profit because we were paying more for everything. And that's, you know, there's a domino effect there. I think the other thing when you're talking about making business decisions is, you know, you, you had mentioned it kind of uh, when we were talking about what we were going to be speaking about, um, things like opening extensions or extending our tap room or opening another satellite tap room. Um, and looking at the metrics there, what is, what does that look like? We did a, uh, as you, I think, know, we opened a, a brewery and a distillery hub in Boulder, right at the onset of, of COVID, which we held on to for a couple of years, but we blew it out of the gates. Just the night of our grand opening was the night the governor shut down all the bars and restaurants. So we're a little gun shy. You, kn- you know, I was there. To- I was there yeah. for that friends and a family opening uh, down in Boulder, and then you're right. The next day, the next day we were locked down. I still, <laughs> I still came out for your opening though, Dave. <laughs> I appreciate that. I want. Well, that that made us a little gun shy. Sure, sure, sure. But so I don't. Looking at that, you know, I I think some of the some of the metrics we might look at now after that experience, if we were to do that again, which we're always considering, is maybe something smaller where that new business itself doesn't need to be so profitable, but maybe maybe the beer that we're selling ourselves that we're making at our headquarters, that volume really helps us with the overall picture. So maybe, you know, we're looking at more at, at, at brewing closer to our capacity within our four walls because we built the brewery to do more than it is currently doing. So now we have to look at how do we increase our volume and if it's through a satellite tap room, it's not, we're trying to open up a super separate, um, super profitable business. We're just trying to increase our volume at home. 
that's a more important metric than it would have been even two years ago for us. So I don't know, worth throwing out there, I thought. Sure. I want to definitely come back to that hospitality question, but I want to maybe finish up on talking about how to, you know, this visibility into some of these key metrics. And I, I know you had some thoughts on that, Patrick. Yeah, well, I, on the key metric side, I do want to, you know, um, you know, obviously all the things, all the things these guys talk about, gross margin, um, you know, share, how that turns into cash, right? Especially, I mean, all those things, you know, are super important. I, I am a little curious, as you, as you know, uh, as you guys all know, as I mentioned before, you know, distribution's a big, uh, a big, you know, it's a big part of Encompass's business and history, you know, and I'm curious, um, I am curious, uh, I guess, Cole, on the, you know, the, how big of a lever is self-distro, right? And not everybody has that, you know, not everybody has that lever available to them. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a big, it's a big step, but I know, you know, I'm, when you think about a phrase like, you know, becoming the IPA for Ohio, right, which is a, you know, that's a, that is a defensible brand position, you know, to take, right? Um, what's, how much is self-distro a part of that, you know, making that strategy come to life? And then what metrics do you think, are there metrics that you think about as you, because as someone who plays in the self, has a big self-distro footprint, are there other metrics that on the distribution side that you think about, you know, other than just purely the production ones? You know, like it said earlier, self-distribution is huge for us. It's 54% of our total business is self-distributed, which is Cincinnati and Columbus. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's, it's a giant piece of the business. I think our market penetration is significantly increased because of our self-distribution. Um, instead of just having a, you know, a sales rep call on an account, you've also got a driver who is popping in once or twice a week to drop off. It's a, it's a whole nother touch point. It's, it's, you know, more share of mind with, with beer buyers. We've got great relationships with all those people because they're interacting with multiple parts of our, our business and, and multiple people. Um, and they have more avenues to, to get things fixed if something goes wrong. So, you know, it, it, it's a big piece, certainly. You know, from a sales and distribution perspective, you know, there's always rate of sale and, and points of distri distribution and, and that are kind of the standard metrics. Now, from a distribution and a freight perspective, we're looking at total volume um, on routes. Like we kind of launched our, our distribution business with a, a fleet of Sprinter vans, um, which in the early days were great. Uh, but as you blow past the 3,000 pound weight limit on a Sprinter van and it becomes 6,000 pounds, uh, the maintenance costs on those vans and the life of those vans drops dramatically. Um, so we're having to kind of rethink our distribution business and and how we operate it with box trucks and kind of more traditional vehicles that you know bigger distributors have been using for a long time um but as a, a 10 year old distributor that only distributes Rheingeist, uh you know that hasn't hasn't been something in, until recently that we've had to deal with so you know total number of cases total number of kegs per driver per route um, and and kind of how we're routing those people to manage that and level load uh, that volume is is key and and definitely something we're we're highly focused on. That's a massive amount to keep internally to do over fifty thousand barrels of self distribution. I mean, you're a logistics company and not just a brewery. Then at that scale, because um, you know it's yeah. what's what's interesting though is if you look at if you look at the wine side of our business, and again, like people don't and a little bit of people don't realize. 
the, when we came together, these guys of Intrace, we now, you know, we have about 225 craft brewers, you know, in the, in the business, but we have like over 800 wineries now that are in the, in our business as well. And, you know, DTC or direct consumer, you know, wine club is a, is a much more significant distribution channel, right. In wine, you know, um, uh, than obviously for the vast majority of, of craft brewers. Right. And it's, uh, and it's for all the reasons you guys mentioned, but you know, they're still shipping heavy glass. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, it's still, they're still shipping heavy glass liquid, you know, to, uh, you know, across state lines. Um, but it's, it's interesting how in wine, you know, uh, it's a much more, obviously it's a much more fragmented production environment, you know, and, uh, that hasn't consolidated to the same degree, uh, as he, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show here on, uh, in craft. Right. But, um, but that direct consumer piece is a big part of, is a big part of the business, right? Of most of these wineries, there are large, you know, conglomerate wineries. Sure. Mo- the vast majority are relatively small operations yeah. and that DDC, yeah. you know, component is, is the key piece that allows people to find the margin, you know, and create right. that added value to the agricultural product that they're creating in order to, um, to make those businesses successful. You know, you're, you're a hundred percent right. And I mean, I think there's a lot to be seen in this craft beer world in the future. Um, obviously, the, the wine folks have way better lobbyists that have been able to find favorable laws to, to make it possible for all of this direct-to-consumer you know, interstate shipping uh, in a way that does not exist necessarily for, for brewers right now. Um, yep. But but I digress. Let's let's jump back to that hospitality question because you you started in on it, Dave, and I think that that it's important noting this if we're talking again about future proofing, that up until the pandemic, the you know this kind of predominant um, you know idea amongst breweries is that you should sell as much you know as you can direct to consumer uh, over your own bar. That's where you're going to drive the most margin. And so we've seen you know especially leading you know in the years you know, of the the late twenty teens. Breweries opening up satellite tap room after satellite tap room, maxing out depending on what those state laws are, and uh, you know, and then post pandemic, obviously, <laughs> some of that strategy changed quite a bit. Not just because of the pandemic itself, but also because of what the pandemic has meant for consumer behavior. That I think that you know, it's in a way that we didn't necessarily predict. We didn't necessarily predict that the pandemic would change the way that people think about going out and uh, even change the frequency at which they might go out for a drink with friends and, and then then instead spend more time at home. Um, and how do you, how do, you know, does Scott as well as Ryan Geist, you know, both then think about this kind of hospitality piece, um, how that figures into your future business plans you know, where you see that going and, uh, you know, how, how you all are making investment decisions around it, uh, based on where you see consumer activity be going. Yeah, that's, that's an, it's an interesting puzzle. There's, uh, one big thing that I, that we noticed here, you know, in our own tasting room, um, we have a restaurant as well here, um, was before COVID, you know, most of our space, most of our physical space was taken up on any given day that it was crowded um, with people drinking beer. A lot of people out playing cornhole, people standing at the bar two or three deep when it was busy, uh, people just standing around. And then COVID happened. And, uh, you know, I think we were at about 25 to 30% of our revenues were food versus 70 beer. And after COVID, you know, when things started to open up, 
suddenly you had to be sitting at a table. You know, the tables had to be six feet apart. And unfortunately, I think we actually changed the behavior of like our local customer. Um, and they they got trained to come here only if they were eating food. And our margins are not in food. And, uh, and so I just long for the days where, and now we're the opposite. You know, we're, we're 70%, well, 50, 55 to 70, depending on uh, time of year, food versus beer in our own walls. Um, so sales have continued to grow. That's the bright spot. Overall net revenues are up, but the, the ratio of beer to food has changed heavy toward food um it's great but it's, it's it's a different model it's a different atmosphere so if you if you look at an extension of our tasting room whatever it might be even if it's here at our headquarters or in another satellite location the model is going to be built toward drinking beer um and uh and not not that there's anything against food and i love having it here but it's it's a it's a diff much more difficult thing to manage and uh you can't make any money on food um they just like beer i mean i know we kind of isolate ourselves and we think about oh gosh raw materials have gone up cost of goods have got everything has gone up it's not just breweries you know it's everywhere so whether it's gas or restaurants whatever it might be um and so food is really really difficult it's great because people can have another beer and they're they're not you know not going to have the same effects from the alcohol um, and it is nice. It is kind of a, it is kind of a nice atmosphere in inside, but we kind of lost the beer part, you know, even outside with the, with cornhole or whatever and dogs and people drinking beer and doing whatever it is they might do. Um, and it's also, that's more in my personal wheelhouse. I feel better in the beer world. I understand it better. The food world's difficult for me, but we're in a model now where food is part of our future, if we ever extend, it's because of the laws in Colorado. Any other liquor license we have will now include food, unless we change everything again. Do you all have data on um, uh, frequency of visit? You know, from uh, existing customers, I, I, I've been curious about that. That you know, it doesn't take. You know, what we haven't seen as people stop going out, but if somebody goes out two nights instead of three nights. And we start seeing that on a broader, you know, kind of aggregate scale. Well, all of a sudden you lose a third of the business, you know, or the entire hospitality business loses a third of its business. That's a humongous impact in aggregate from something that seems pretty minor at a small and an individual personal scale. Um, You know, and so I think, you know, if I look at it, I suspect that's what's happening to have some impact on a lot of breweries that might not be people's first visit that might have been their third or fourth visit, you know, for, for a brewery in a week. Um, I think some of those breweries are probably facing some of the, the largest impact, uh, in terms of this kind of business, uh, reset or this, uh, you know, these kind of turbulent waters. Have you guys, do you have any data around repeat visits and the frequency of visits from, uh, from individual customers? Obviously you want to have the, uh, individual details hidden on that kind of stuff just for individual privacy, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm just curious if you have any insight and data around that and if it's even possible to pull that out of some of your data. We do not really at Rangeist. Um, it's certainly something we're looking at and we're trying to acquire. Um, but yeah, how do you do that in a way that 
doesn't feel invasive and, you know, feels authentic. You know, we're, we're trying to figure that out. We do know we're largely uh, tourism driven. Um, we're a destination brewery in kind of north of downtown Cincinnati. We don't have a huge like local, you know, visitor pool. Um, we, you know, we've got some people that live around the neighborhood, but there's also two dozen other bars and restaurants and breweries and distilleries around here. Um, so we, we do a lot of, a lot of first time, you know, new to town. What do you do when you go to Cincinnati, eat Cincinnati chili, and then you go down to Rangais and have a beer. And, and that's kind of been a huge thing for us, which has worked. Um, but yeah, post COVID things change. Um, you can no longer just kind of throw up your doors and shout into the street, we make beer and expect people to come in. Um, you've really got to tailor your customer experience to all types of people. Um, you know, we used to just serve craft beer and a few other things. Now we are putting a lot more effort into building a spirits program and having NA offerings and things for kids. And, you know, really, if we're going to capture somebody, let's make sure we can actually capture them and their family and their friends and, you know, um, really tailor the experience. If people are going to go out less, they're still going to go out, but just not as often. What can we do to make them choose us as their destination? Um, you know, and that, that runs all the way through, you know, events and, and kind of how we market the tap room, um, trying to embed ourselves in the community and kind of be really intentional in, in what we do and why we do it. Um, so that people choose to stop by our tap room, uh, when they do go out. Sure. Patrick, do you have any thoughts on the, the hospitality piece and how, uh, you know, data can help make uh, better decisions around some of these things? Well, I think we see, you know, I, I think we're starting to see a handful of customers, right? And, uh, well, certainly I would just say with hospitality, starting to connect point of, point of sale systems, you know, into their production systems, right? So that there's a little bit more of a connected, even internal supply chain, right? Like what's the, de- you know, little, little tighter connection between the demand, you know, in the hospitality part of the business uh, into the production side. You know, obviously in, in the bigger supply chain, that's been a big area of focus for us, you know, you know, kind of automating the depletion data, you know, what's like, what is actually moving in at Kroger's, right? Uh, as opposed to waiting for the, you know, waiting for the distribution salesperson to go in and count and like that, let that lag time, you know, like uh, there's a lot of interesting innovations we're doing uh, in a product called Retail Insights that like starts pumping that, making that real-time data, which again, starts to feel like a lot of other supply chains that, you know, maybe don't uh, have the benefit of the three-tier system, right? But, uh, but um, you know, that kind of real-time data, like it starts to inform, you know, just again, makes you more intelligent, you know, it gives you, it gives you more insights into what's happening in the market, whether it's in your hospitality, part of your business, or uh, all the way through distribution, right? Sure, sure. Well, we've been talking for a little while now. We need to, to kind of wrap up. Maybe we'll wrap up on, uh, you know, a bigger, broader question. Um, and we can, you know, kind of go around the table. You know, Dave, if you're thinking about uh, some of the biggest takeaways and some of the things that uh, the brewers out there listening should be focused on the most in terms of uh, the health of their business, you know, what's uh, one or two major pieces of advice that uh, that you could give to folks? Um, the things that may not be obvious that, that they should, uh, um, you know, definitely pay close attention to. And, uh, you know, as they are managing their businesses in the next uh, three to five years. Um, I think 
You know, when, one of the things we didn't really talk about very specifically when we were talking about costs, but labor is a huge one for us. It's a huge one for everybody, for every brewer. And I think it's interesting because there's, you know, there's a number of, there's probably a number of folks that got into the brewing world when it was absolutely on fire because it was on fire. Maybe the passion wasn't there. Those people might come and go. Um, then there's the owner operator in a small tap room that, that understands probably what I'm about to say, that there's, it's a lot of work and, uh, there's no getting around it and it is a low margin business. Um, then I think once you start getting into distributing breweries up into like the regional size, for us, I think keeping an eye on labor, um, it's tighter than it's ever been. We kind of have to reevaluate how we do things. And I think you're going to see some of the, at least in our case, this is, seems to be a, a smart move and, and some advice that I would offer is, is that some of the maybe upper management or owners, founders like myself need to be getting their hands dirty again and uh, really kind of get in there and start and start working. And, and the way you look and build your labor model now, at least for skies, it's different than it was a couple of years ago. We've um, it's pretty lean, but, and we've had a lot more, I used to, I used to really believe in everybody having a strong focus within their role. And now, and I kind of pushed against, being a jack of all trades, you know, because I always felt jack of all trades, master of none, you know, you got to focus on something. And I flipped that. And, uh, I think we cross train much more than we ever have. Um, we have a program an onboarding program and everybody gets trained in every department on the production side. And then, you know, a lot of our management and admin, they hop on the canning line or whatever it might be when we need those people. And I think it's, I think sometimes, um, you know, what, what we've really focused on is, is that not having any uh, influence on quality in a negative way, but put it in place where you're, if you're maximizing the efficiency of everybody's time, especially when you're running lean. You just don't have the room to wiggle. Um, we don't anyways like we used to. And I think labor, you know, it's your biggest cost. So really looking at that and evaluating how you run the operation it's not a bad idea even when you grow a bit to have people that can do some of the other work there at a quality level and actually really put some effort in that training it's been a big focus for us this this year and i mean the last few years for sure heck yeah cole uh you know what were some uh a takeaway or two that uh, that you have yeah i mean i think uh you know back to my thoughts on prioritization and focus um Make sure when you're looking at your brand portfolio and what you're innovating in, you're right-sizing your resourcing. Um, you know, if if you've got something that's growing or even something that's flat, but it's a big part of your portfolio, make sure you're still giving that resources and you're not letting it wither and die because you're too focused on finding the next big thing and the next piece of innovation. Um, you know, and that's not to say ignore innovation, but... You know, I, I see a lot of effort sometimes. It's, you know, 80% of the effort for 20% of the business. And and that's how flagships fail. And that's how the cash cows, you know, start to wither away. Um, so just every year kind of having that focus exercise of like, what's important to us? What are our priorities? You, they can't be everything. We can't prioritize every brand. We can't prioritize every opportunity. Um, 
So how do we resource that accordingly and, and, and kind of allocate the limited resources that we all have these days uh, to the right place? Sure. Patrick, uh, takeaways. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there's a lot of analogies. Again, I'll say between, although, yeah, a software company might sound like a very different kind of company than a, than a craft brewer. Um, there's a lot of analogies, right? A lot of a lot of software companies, including Compass, right, got to us. You get to a certain level of growth just by winning on product, right? You build a great product, it like you know it uh, it catches on to the marketplace, and you just grow. You grow in product, and then uh, and that gets you to a certain level, you know. And then at some point, you've got to like not just be great at building product, you've got to be great at sales and marketing, you've got to be great at operations, you've got to be great at customer success. And I think I listen to these guys talk and that's the maturation of these businesses, just like just like the maturation of a lot of software companies, right? You've got to become, we say it, we say it in Compass all the time, you've got to be world-class at every aspect of your business, uh, not just one part of your business. And, and I think that's, you know, we all had the luxury of being just really great at product and having that, you know, like you said, like you put out a sign, we make great beer, put out a sign, we make great software and a lot of good things happen, right? Um, but it's, you get to a scale, and if your aspirations are continue to scale, you got to you got to be world class at everything you do, and that's just uh, it's hard work. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. But that I think that realization is uh, it's very parallel to all of our businesses, and and you know I can hear like hear it from David Cole, right? How do you how do you say true to who you are, but but scale? That's uh, that's the trick. That is a great place to bring this to a close. Thanks again for joining me on this special business-focused episode of the podcast brought to you interruption-free by the transformational beverage industry technologists at Encompass. Visit Encompass Tech to learn more about how they can help future-proof your business with modern technology. Um, Dave, Cole, Patrick, thank you for joining me in this conversation. It's been uh, enlightening and uh, eye-opening and mind-expanding uh, to talk about how you all approach all of these subjects. And uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Cheers. Thanks to all of you. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, you guys. We'll talk soon. Take care. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 